0: At a very high level, there are two kinds of assets. Loans and Investments. Credit is what makes the bank's core business. Now, you could be giving credit to individual borrowers, you could be giving credit to corporates, you could be giving credit to governments, and you could be giving credit to institutions. Largely banks, and I'm talking about commercial banks here, the banks whose core business is lending, mostly commercial banks end up keeping investments in their books to take care of their liquidity requirements. Prime Lending Rate started, PLR. So, Prime Lending Rate was nothing but a rate basis the cost of funds of the bank for its most prime borrowers.
1: Hi and welcome to another episode of Open Dialogue by Axis Bank. Uh, In our last episode we started talking about banks, how they work and we covered the funding side of banks. Uh, Today uh, we continue this topic and today we will focus a lot on the asset side of the banks, the loans they make and how they operate uh, and how they make money. Uh, Joining me again is Neeraj Gambhir, Neeraj is the group executive at Axis Bank and he heads treasury amongst other functions for the bank and we look forward to this conversation. Uh, Let's talk about what various types of assets do banks have and uh, how do they think about uh, each of these.
0: So look, I mean, from asset side perspective, really at the very high level, there are two kinds of assets, loans and investments. Yep. Right? Loans is basically what the core business of banks is, right? We we talked about credit being at least 4,000 years old. Uh, So credit is what makes the bank's core business. Now, you could be giving credit to individual borrowers, you could be giving credit to corporates, you could be giving credit to governments, uh, and you could be giving credit to institutions. So, the borrower may change, but ultimately you are giving loan to someone who has agreed to pay you back over a period of time, uh, at a defined time frame, Uh, and in exchange for borrowing this money from you, he has agreed to pay you a certain level of interest rate, right? Uh, it could be you borrowing this money from the bank to buy a house or a car or to go for a vacation. Uh, it could be a corporate who is borrowing this money from a bank to put up a new plant or to pay for their workers' salaries or to buy raw materials. It could be a government who could be borrowing this money from the banking system to do all the expenditure that they need to do on welfare schemes, pay the government employee salary, etc., etc. So, effectively, This is the dominant part of a bank's asset balance sheet. You could act, you know, the loans can be of two types, broadly, fixed rate, floating rate. Fixed rate in which we agree that the rate of interest that is to be paid over the entire life of the loan right up front, right? Floating rate in which we say that the rate of interest that is to be paid through the life of the loan will change as time passes depending upon market conditions. And we agree that this could be dependent upon a particular benchmark, market driven benchmark or a regulatory benchmark or a policy benchmark. And basis as the benchmark changes, we could change the level of interest rates. The second kind of asset that you have on your balance sheet is investments. These could be investments into bonds, investments into um, equity, stocks, shares. Uh, investments into um, different kinds of assets, for example, unit trusts, units of mutual funds, etc. Typically, you keep largely banks, and I'm talking about commercial banks here. The banks whose core business is lending, mostly commercial banks end up keeping investments in their books to take care of their liquidity requirements. Right, right, to meet the regulatory liquidity ratio requirements. Um, And a dominant part of these investments are in the form of government securities, right, which are tradable in the market, but also to some extent in corporate bonds and also to some extent in, you know, um, uh, some other forms of bonds. Um, Equity tends to be a very small proportion for banks. Uh, So that's broadly the composition of the asset side of the banks.
1: Great. Thanks, uh, Anirath. just uh, diving a little bit into this, uh, the fixed versus floating rate uh, uh, point you made, uh, you know, Indian banking, the floating rate itself has evolved over time, right? At th- there was a time when we used to have these prime lending rates (PLRs) and we had MCLR. Uh, we have now EBLR. Uh, so, if you can just a- demystify some of these terms and also help us understand what, why this migration over time.
0: So, we talked about floating rates as a re- you know, a sort of a contract, a loan contract, in which the interest rate is not fixed for the life of the contract. It changes over a period of time depending upon market conditions. So, the key question is that how do we ascertain these market conditions? What benchmark or parameter do we use to sort of link this floating rate to, in order for it to reflect market conditions? Initially, when the whole concept of floating rate loans started, since the, the, the bond markets in India were very nascent, there was not enough liquidity, there was not enough uh, trading volumes, etc. Uh, and banks were anyways borrowing money largely from deposit markets, uh, well and the deposit rates could change in line with the market. So banks said that we will link these rates, these floating rates to our own cost of funds. right? That's how the concept of Prime Lending Rate started, PLR. So, Prime Lending Rate was nothing but a rate basis, the cost of funds of the bank for its most prime borrowers. That's why it's called Prime Lending Rate. And if you are not a prime borrower, then we would charge you something extra on that rate. So, you know, for a non-prime borrower, it is PLR plus some markup, some spread, some markup. But over a period of time, it was realized that um, PLRs of the banks are not moving as much as they should in line with changes in the policy rates, right? So, while Reserve Bank was trying to change the policy rates in consonance with what's happening in the economy, whether it's the inflation or the growth, but that is not getting filtered down into the rest of the economy because banks' lending rates are not moving in consonance. Therefore, Reserve Bank came up with a concept called MCLR, right? Marginal Cost-Based Lending Rate. What it basically means is the concept of prime was that how your overall balance sheet will change. The concept of marginal was how your marginal borrowing will change. So, in some senses, the methodology that was prescribed for computing marginal uh, cost was taking into account What the market conditions are at a given point in time and the thesis was that once you move banks from a historical book based to marginal you will see more
1: better transmission
0: better uh, alignment in these rates versus what the policy rates are doing now this concept of the fact that rates in the economy have to be in alignment and move up and down in line with the policy rates is called monetary policy transmission remember Central bank sets the rates, but if these rates are not transmitted in the economy, it will not have the desired effect. Therefore, it's a monetary policy requirement that these rates get transmitted, right? So, it is believed that MCLR will be a better way to transmit these rates in the economy and the borrowers will basically get to see the rates go up and down in line with market conditions. But there were some flaws in the MCLR system as well. On the other hand, the bond market have been developing over a period of time and we now have more benchmarks, more trading, more bonds for us to think about how do we link these floating rates. So, in October 2019, it was made mandatory for the banks to link their retail lending rates to what is called external benchmark, which means the underlying benchmark for these floating rate loans cannot be your own cost of funds, cannot be your marginal cost of funds, but has to be a market-determined benchmark. You can choose what benchmark you want to choose, but it has to be a market-determined benchmark. In the context of that, and because markets in India are still developing, uh, the banking system, you know, in some senses collectively moved towards linking these loans to policy rates. But remember, policy rates are not market benchmarks. Right? Therefore, but they do reflect what the central bank is doing with regard to monetary policy. So now, uh, we are at a situation where bulk of the lending for retail borrowers and to some extent, frankly, to a large extent, borrowing to non-retail borrowers, corporates, SMEs, is linked to market benchmark. And the dominant market benchmark that is prevalent in the Indian banking system today is RBI's repo rate, which is also their policy rate. So again, the theory is that as this has happened, the transmission of policy actions into market rates will be a lot faster.
1: Right. So again, just to kind of put this into my own words, uh, the the primary way the Reserve Bank controls uh, monetary policy, which Abundance is
0: the word influences
1: influences monetary monetary conditions, let's say inflation and so on and so forth, is by varying the level of interest rates. And so, if the inflation is high, uh, the central bank will want interest rates to be high. Now, the central bank can set their policy rate, but they can't set the final home loan rate to the borrower or the personal loan rate or whatever else. And they would ideally want some kind of linkage to pass through so that if they increase by 50 basis points here, this should also hopefully go up by something, maybe 50 basis points, maybe 100, whatever, but it goes up. And if they bring this rate down, then this should also come down. Historically, we had the PLR or the prime lending rate, which was at the portfolio. So if, if I'm a bank and my deposit book is 100 crores, the total cost of that 100 crores is what would translate to the prime lending rate. So now if the Reserve Bank raise their rates, my 100 crores, which is a little bit historical, is not going to move so much. Uh, right? And so then they said, okay, instead of portfolio, now get to marginal, which means the next 10 rupees that you're going to borrow, what is the rate of that? You link it to that. And so, that was the MCLR, which is 100 crores doesn't matter, but the next, uh, you know, whatever, 10 lakhs or 1 crore that I'm going to borrow, if that rate is going to be higher because of the rates gone up, then I will increase my rates to the borrower. And now, finally, they have said, okay, don't even do that. Uh, let's just link it to this rate itself. And practically, that's what's happened. So, now, if the central bank raises the repo rate, uh, the your home loan rate will go up. And if they drop it, will go down and likely by very close to that uh, amount itself. And so the transmission of the monetary policies yeah. is much better. Uh, yeah. through this.
0: So effectively as an individual borrower, you will, the effect of central bank's actions is becoming uh, very imminent, imminent to you yeah. and immediate and imminent and, immediate, you, yeah,
2: yeah, both. Uh,
0: uh, and therefore it can influence your behavior. Exactly, And the the way theory goes is that if the rates become too high, so effectively the borrowing becomes more expensive and you have less disposable income and that less disposable income means less consumption, less consumption means less demand. So effectively less demand means less inflation. Rates went up because inflation was higher. So effectively it will help bring down the inflation, right? So that's the theory. Um, And for it to work as it is advertised in the theory, Uh, there needs to be a very strong linkage between what the central bank is doing with its policy rates and the kind of rates which are prevalent in the market, market, right? So, if if that linkage does not exist in a very uh, highly correlated fashion, uh, the effectiveness of monetary policy or central bank's action is dented, right? It's not as effective. Therefore, central bank has been trying to make sure that banking system passes on Uh, the benefits of rate cuts or the cost of higher borrowing uh, in proportion or in line with what happens to the policy rates. So, effectively, that's what the transition is all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Neeraj, now let's take a slightly different angle to the same question, which is from a bank's economics perspective. Uh, And the floating rate and the fixed rate have, I presume, very different impacts, right? Because uh, on the fixed rate, you have basically determined, let's say it's a three-year loan, and let's say it's at 8.5%. So, happen what may, the borrower will pay you 8.5%. Uh, percent. If the same ro- loan were floating rate, then, you know, if the rates went up, the borrower pay higher. If the rates went down, the borrower will pay lower. So, obviously, this impacts the bank's, e- bank's economics. And so, if you can elaborate a little bit on, you know, what is that and, you know, this change if has… You,
0: if you think about this, the best structured bank's balance sheet is one which has one-to-one correlation.
1: Between right? the liability and the Between
0: asset. the cost of the liabilities yeah. and the yield on the assets. Yeah. So that my margin is kind of fixed. Within a defined range. Yeah. It's not fixed, at least it's, it's in a very narrow range. Yeah. Right? And what this margin reflects is effectively the amount of credit risk that the bank ends up taking. Yes. Because effectively, the bank is putting its own balance sheet in the process. It's putting its capital in the process of Lending this money out to the end borrower, right? Now, that's the theory. But in reality, what happens is, um, the deposits that we raise are largely fixed rate deposits. Because they are CASA and, you know. So, CASA is given, SA doesn't change as much. Even term deposits or fixed deposits are fixed. Yeah. Right? That's the nature of these deposits. If
1: it's a 3-year FD, it's a 3-year FD with a certain defined... Uh, interest rate.
0: Yeah. Also, these deposits have their own individual quirks. For example, yep. CASA can be volatile, Yep. right? Fixed deposits are not so volatile, but you have the option to prematurely withdraw, Yep. right? So, if the rates were to change dramatically, people can prematurely withdraw. So, all of these dynamics on the liability side create a particular cost dynamic for the banking system, right? Now, if your loans are fixed, you have a better protection against these dynamics of interest rates because your liabilities are largely fixed rate liabilities, but as your loans become floating and if they're linked to my cost of funds the bank's cost of funds still is okay but as the loans become floating linked to a market benchmark and the cost of liabilities does not necessarily move up and down in the same way as the market benchmark is moving what this is going to do is create a income volatility for the banks. Right. right? Now, this is income volatility, it does not change the essential characteristic or the safety or the safeness of a bank. All it says is the amount of margin or the spread that the banks will make may not stay constant or may not stay well defined over a period of time. It can change up and down depending upon how the rates change. In the current scenario, a large proportion of banks' assets are linked to REPO and it is a regulatory requirement for the banks to change the rate on these assets or in these loans once every 3 months. right? So effectively, your asset book will change in terms of its returns every three months. Now, if the policy rates don't change, it's okay, it will behave like a fixed rate. But if the policy rates do change, and if they do go up and down quite sharply, the the return behavior of this book will also change quite sharply. On the other hand, your deposit book is still largely a fixed rate deposit book, right? Therefore, the income volatility of the banking system can actually undergo a dramatic change in both of these regimes. Floating rate, market-linked floating rate assets induce more income volatility. Now, the belief is that as time goes by, as the economy gets used to market-linked rates, hopefully liabilities will also start pricing in faster, right? Right. You could potentially see over some period of time, floating rate fixed deposits coming into vogue. It isn't there as yet, But also, it's not there as yet because we've only seen about four years of this new market-linked interest rate regime, right? As time goes by, as banks gain more experience, they will also think about how do we manage the liability side of the balance sheet.
1: Great. Very helpful. So, Neeraj, so moving on, uh, there are two topics I wanted to cover. First is investments Uh, and you mentioned uh, the investments made for liquidity. Uh, of the nature of government securities, etc. And I guess this is also linked to the SLR, uh, right? So, so one is helpful from just to understand what is this SLR and also what is the CRR? You mentioned CRR earlier, the 4%, but what is SLR? And in the context of this also, this notion of the HTM and the AFS, uh, this has, it's a topic that was very much discussed, I think, nine months back when this entire SVB, Silicon Valley Bank episode happened. Uh, So, maybe you can throw some light on both.
0: So, look, investments, uh, the largest component of of investments in particularly Indian bank's balance sheet is government securities. Right. Government securities are issued by governments, both state and central government, to finance their fiscal deficit. uh, And these are issued in open market format. uh, And government of India typically ends up borrowing somewhere close to 15 lakh crores in a year from the banking system and from the financial markets to finance its fiscal deficit. Now, when it comes to reserve requirements, there are two kinds of reserve requirements. The first, as I described the fractional reserve banking system, a fraction of the deposits have to be kept as a reserve with the central bank, right? This is called cash reserve ratio, CRR. This is the amount of money that every bank has to keep with the RBI in their account with RBI, it doesn't earn any interest.
1: So, it's a current account of the bank.
0: It's a current like account the, of the bank with the central bank. Yeah,
1: the RBI is a banker to the bank. So, Axis Bank, as an example, has a current account with We have a current RBI, account with RBI. And every 100 rupees of deposits that we raise, we have to keep 4 rupees.
0: For uh, whatever the CR whatever ratio the, is. Yeah, whatever the CR ratio uh, is. Uh, that much money we have to keep in that account. Yeah. And we don't earn any, any interest. interest on yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Now, that broadly determines the creation of money in the system, Yep. right? This is the speed breaker on the creation of money in the system. Yep. The second kind of reserve ratio is what we, uh, there are two terms for it. One is the SLR, one is the LCR, let me explain both. SLR is the very native Indian regime of liquidity ratio. Right. It basically says that, yes, you have kept aside 4 rupees with RBI as a reserve. But you also should make sure that you have some assets in your balance sheet which can be easily liquidated in the event of a stress. And typically what can be easily liquidated is government bonds. So you should maintain these in the form of government bonds. The SLR regime, like I said, it's a very native uh, Indian way of doing things. Uh, And it's it's enshrined in the law. Uh, It said that of your total deposit base, keep aside a certain proportion as investments in government bonds
1: and right now that number is 18
0: yeah the number used to be very high as high as 40 percent right uh, but it has been brought down steadily over a period of time to say 18 percent currently now we'll stick with the SLR regime for a minute to understand what it does for the bank so let's say if I raise hundred rupees as a deposit I keep four aside in the Reserve Bank account as interest-free deposit with the RBI I take the 18 out of the balance and I put that in Government Bonds. Government Bonds is the money gone to the Government for its use. So effectively, the money available to me for creating loans is only 78 78. rupees. right? So against 100 rupees of deposit, I can now only lend 78 rupees. So it affects the amount of lending that the banks can do to the rest of the system. So, like I said, SLR was a very Indian uh, regime. Uh, globally, there was no such regime of liquidity for the banks. Some jurisdictions had an equivalent of a reserve requirement like CRR. Some didn't even have that. Post GFC, under the under the ages of Basel, uh, you know, uh, the whole world in a way come, came together to form guidelines for the banking system. And one of those guidelines was LCR, Liquidity Coverage Ratio. It basically said that as a bank, you need to set aside certain amount of money to take care of liquidity requirements in the event of stress. And the way they arrived at liquidity coverage ratio, it's a very complex math behind it, but it depends upon what kind of deposits you have, you know, what is the nature of the depositor from which you are raising the deposit, what's the purpose of that deposit. All said and done today, a certain proportion of, banks deposits have to be set aside as what is called HQLA, high quality liquid assets to meet the LCR requirements. Therefore, in the Indian context, we have two liquidity ratios. One is the SLR, which is the old regime, fixed percentage of your deposit base. Second is LCR, complex maths behind it, but certain amount of deposits to be invested in, high quality liquid investments effect is broadly the same that you have to set aside certain amount of your deposits invest them in government bonds or high quality liquid assets but you cannot make loans out of them right right so it's it constrains the ability of the banking system to provide credit to the economy
1: right and these the SLR which is the government securities that a bank owns are quote unquote held to maturity
0: Yeah. Now, to answer your question on L2 majority versus available for sale versus available. See, this all boils down to how do we account for these securities in our balance sheet, right? Uh, Unlike loans, securities, government bonds, corporate bonds, they are all traded in the market. Right. So, there is a market price. Right. Right. Now, if something is traded in the market and there is a market price to it, accounting conservatism requires... That if the price of that security has fallen below your holding period, you know that you could incur a loss. So, you provide for it now. As against that, loans don't trade in the market. There's no market price to loans. So, we sit on loans. We don't account for any losses on account of changes in the interest rates. The values of government bonds, because they are fixed income securities, changes as the interest rates change. And therefore, we need to account for that banks are by statute required to hold a certain amount of security a certain amount of assets as securities to meet their liquidity ratio requirements right therefore this whole concept of htm came into play htm was that to the extent you are maintaining certain securities which you don't intend to sell they are a part and parcel of your doing business you do not need to account for changes in the market value of these securities in your books of accounts. Effectively, you treat them as if they are loans, right? So it basically reduces the amount of income volatility that the banks have with respect to changes in the interest rates. The other treatment is available for sale, AFS. Available for sale means what it says that you can sell these securities at any point in time. And because you can sell these securities at any point in time, if there are changes in the market value of these securities, you must account for them in your balance sheet, right? Now, I think about this. You are holding 100 crores of securities. You bought these securities when interest rates were low. As the in, And these are all fixed income securities, as in their fixed rate bonds. As and when the market rates go up, and let us say the market rates did go up quite sharply, the value of these securities will come down, right? Because the rates have gone up, the price is going to come down. This diminution in the value of these securities does not require to be accounted for in HTM, but is required to be accounted for in AFS, right? Therefore, in some senses, HTM accounting treatment of these securities camouflages what happens to the value of these securities if the rates were to go up. We are only looking at one side, even the rates go up. If the rates were to go down, the value of securities goes up. Yeah. Nobody is bothered about that, right? right. So, therefore, uh, this HTM treatment has a certain effect on the bank's balance sheet, right? Now, that's only part of the story. Remember, the liabilities don't get marked to market. From a very economic value perspective, as the interest rates go up, if the value of my fixed rate assets goes down, the value of my fixed rate liability should go up, yeah. go up. but there is no accounting for that. Yeah. So, in senses, the concept of HTM was arrived at to create a certain evenness. In the accounting of a bank's balance sheet, where the banks are holding large part of their balance sheets as securities. Right. Right. So that the the income volatility is not too much. Yep. Right. So this was the whole thesis around the HTM and the AFS. Understood.
1: So again, just to kind of I will take another simplistic example just to illustrate this. Uh, there is bank X. Bank X is lending to a corporate. We will take a corporate just to kind of simplify the uh, story. Now there are two ways that corporate can borrow from the bank. One is that it can take a loan, uh, and let's say a fixed rate loan for three years at 10%. Right? It could also issue a bond. Same three years, same ticket, uh, uh, this thing, at 10%. Uh, so let's say bank has done 50 rupees through this and 50 rupees through this, or 100 rupees through this and 100 rupees through this. Now the interest rate in the in the ecosystem goes up. The value of the bond falls
0: and so that 100 rupees is now… I just correct you there. Yeah. The economic value, both the bond and the loan has fallen. Yeah. Equally. Yeah. Right? What but has the, happened is because the bond is traded, traded yes. we can see that value. Yes. We can see that value in the price at yes. which it is trading. Yes. But the loan is not traded.
1: It's not traded. Yeah. So, hence the on the, on the market side, you can see your ticker somewhere on Bloomberg maybe which says that… This uh, bond, which was earlier 100 is now worth 95 rupees, so the bank is making a notional loss of 5 rupees. If the bank were to hold both the loan and the bond to maturity, the amount of money it will make is exactly the same, uh, right? But if the bank were to sell the bond at this point in time, it will make a loss of uh, Yeah,
0: 5 remember rupees. the bond is saleable. Yeah, exactly. So I can sell the bond yes. and I can realize that loss. Yes. And accounting treatments are typically conservative.
1: Absolutely. It As says that be. if you can yeah. see something, then you should uh, then you should
0: provide for yeah. it.
1: And so, if, if my bond were quote-unquote available for sale, which means that I have the ability to sell it, I am required to recognize this 5 rupee loss. If my bond is an SLR instrument, which means that I cannot sell it uh, by regulation, then I have this... Dispensation will say that don't recognize the 5 rupee loss because anyway you are going to carry yeah. to the end.
0: Well, that's a very uh, somewhat simplistic uh, in the sense that if I'm holding the bond for regulatory requirements, I can push that in HTM. That's how Indian regulation was up until now. Right. But globally, the concept of HTM is not so much about regulation. It's about the intent. Sorry? Intent. Intent, okay. If I intend to hold the bond. Right till maturity, and I don't intend to sell, sell it, it yeah. then I have the option of putting it under HTM category and not recognize the diminution in the market value right. during the life of the bond.
1: Understood. Very right? clear. Very clear, uh, Very clear and very helpful. We'll come back to this again, because again we'll talk about some bank bills, etc. But before that, I want to do two questions. Uh, one is, we when we started, we spoke of three risks that the bank runs, liquidity risk, uh, credit risk and uh, interest rate risk. There is a fourth risk that we've introduced now which is a market risk, uh, right? Uh, because of the fall of securities. Uh, and so one will be helpful to understand like how much of a real risk is that for banks and particularly Indian banks. And then the second question I want to get to is how banks make money. So actually, why don't we cover the market risk and then we'll come to yeah.
0: that. The so think about this, market risk is not necessarily a fourth risk. Right. Market risk or rather interest rate risk is a special case of market risk. It's
1: a special case of market risk, correct. Right?
0: Because markets trade multiple things. Market trades bonds, market trades FX, market trades, you know, commodities, equities. But why we talk about interest rate risk in the bank's balance sheet? Because banks are largely fixed income play. Right. Right? Uh, Most of the banks do not run too much of commodity risk, FX risk or equities risk. Right? They do, some bit in their trading portfolios, but the core business of banking, of borrowing money and lending money creates a very large interest rate risk in the bank's balance sheet. And it is also market risk. Why this risk exists? Because interest rates are going up and down. The market for interest rates is going up and down. Right. Therefore, market risk, interest rate risk is a subcomponent of the market risk. And you need to provide capital for the amount of interest rate risk you run. Uh, Banks are required to measure, quantify the amount of market risk that they run on both liabilities and the asset side of the balance sheet. And depending upon how it is stacked up, you need to provide certain amount of capital against that.
1: Understood. Great. Let's move on to the topic of how banks make money. So, banks obviously make money via credit risk, which is your of taking a deposit and then you're giving a loan and there is a spread in between. Banks also make money by uh, the duration or the uh, mismatch risk, right, which is you're borrowing short and lending long and short-term rates are lower than long-term rates. So, you know, in addition to the credit risk, there is just a duration related uh, money involved there. Banks make money by trading like, you know, the bond example that you gave or Forex, etc. And banks also make money via fee income, which is, I would say, risk fee, which is for the provisioning of uh, services. Uh, so, is a, is this a fair articulation and helpful again to kind of get your thoughts? Of... I
0: would say that the dominant of a commercial bank, you know, we have different kinds of banks. Yep. We have commercial banks, investment banks, you know, um, commercial bank. The dominant source of income for a commercial bank is credit risk. Credit risk, correct. Right, because the dominant uh, part of the balance sheet is, is loans. Is loans, and you're making loans to people who are typically less credit worthy than you are. You know, most of the banks in the economy in India, for example, are rated AA plus or AAA. So obviously, banks have very high credit ratings, and they're making loans to individuals to corporations to you know to institutions who tend to have somewhat lower credit rating than the banks themselves so in the process you are earning a margin you are earning a spread and that spread what is called net interest margin is nim is effectively a dominant source of revenue right so you pick up any commercial banks balance sheet today and you say that if you look at the pnl statement of the bank you will realize that the amount of money that net interest margin makes for the bank versus the amount of money that, let's say, trading income makes for the bank, it's very disproportionate. Right. Right. The order of magnitude is way too high. So, I think in Indian context, in the commercial banking context, it's largely net interest margin. And the dominant component of net interest margin is credit risk. credit risk. Right
1: because also the asset and liability is not that mismatched actually, if you kind of think of. Well, uh, there is
0: some asset liability mismatch. Right. There is some duration play that you talked about where I borrow short, lend long, uh, and therefore in the process, I you know, you, you tend to make some spread. Uh, and you also take liquidity risk, right? You, you say that I will, my borrowing is one day, but you are actually making a 30-day loan. Right. That's the liquidity risk that you end up carrying, right? So, all of these risks are embedded and you get paid for all of these risks as a bank, but the dominant part continues East to be by, by way of Biden. risk, right? Yeah. Uh, liquidity risk, interest rate risk, yes, they are there. Banks are. See, banks are supposed to be in the business of taking these risks, right? right? Please think about this. What is the value addition that the banks are doing in the economy? What is the job that banks perform in the economy? An economy has savers, an economy has investors or economy has borrowing requirements, people have borrowing requirements, right? Corporations are investing, you need money to create an asset, that's a borrowing requirement, that's an investment in a way, right? So banks bring together the savers and the borrowers in an economy and they intermediate between the two. In the process of intermediation, the banks take these risks. Namely, liquidity, interest rate, and credit risk. Because if the banks were not to take these risks, you cannot match the requirements of both. Yeah. Right? So, because banks are taking this risk, they need to be compensated. Yep. And that compensation of risk comes in the form of this net interest margin that I talked about. Now, of course, banks carry a large amount of securities because of the liquidity requirements, liquidity ratio requirements and they trade around in these securities to generate some profits. Banks are also in the the business of providing liquidity to uh, corporates for their foreign currency requirements. So they trade around that and that creates some profits. In financial markets, you have the ability to take risk on equities, stocks, and that, you know, if you take that risk, you make money, that creates profits for the banking system. Uh, All of these components are there uh, in one form or the other uh, in the bank's balance sheet.
1: Right. So, let's just take this a little bit further. So, there is the, if you think of a bank's uh, profitability. uh, So, there is obviously the NII, there is the fee income and then you subtract the OPEX and then you subtract the credit losses. This gives you the quote-unquote PBT and then you divide that by, let's say, risk-weighted assets or something of that nature, right? So, let's take this equation and play with it a little bit, right? So, there is the NII that you very nicely explained. Fee income is fine. That's for delivering services, risk-free, whatever it income. Uh, there is OPEX. There is credit losses. And the denominator is, uh, it's not just assets. It's some risk-weighted type of an asset. So, also, a bank's PL this equation needs to be seen through the cycle because it's easy to kind of get very high NIIs, which may 5 years on the line uh, result in the high NCLs, right? So how does a, how do you think about this equation and how does a bank manage it? A- yeah,
0: so uh, NII is basically the compensation that banks get for taking credit, interest rate, equity risk. Yes. Right. But the business of bank also requires a huge geographical spread. Right. There needs to be branches, Right. they need to be people, there needs to be investment in infrastructure, technology, processes, there are regulatory costs right? All of these costs add up to what is called operating expenses, Yep. right? So, I am generating NII by way of borrowing and lending, by way of investing in securities. But to do so, I need to run an establishment and that establishment has operating expenses. So, we net that off uh, from the NII. That gives you basically your core earnings, right? Now, you are taking credit risk. We all know that credit risk means that at some point in time, someone to whom you lent the money will not be able to pay you back. Right. Right. So, you got to provide for it. It's a a cost of doing the business of banking. And the way it works is that nowadays, you don't provide for uh, these credit losses on actuals, but you provide for these credit losses on estimates. Right. Right. Because we know, that a certain proportion of loans are going to go back, that's the nature of the beast. And if we can estimate what proportion of these loans can go, uh, are likely to go back, we should, in the interest of being conservative, write off a part of this through my, this period's income, rather than wait for that loan to go back, right, that provides more stability to my balance sheet. And then the question uh, uh, arises that, This net income, net of the credit losses, so income minus operating expenses minus credit losses is what is the residual that you have, that you have earned for your shareholders. And you measure this against the equity that the shareholders have given you, right? of course, after paying taxes. So, post-tax equity that the shareholders have given you, that is the classic return on equity equation for a bank. That's one way of looking at bank's profitability. Return on equity, after all these expenses are taken care of, after taxes have been paid, what do the shareholders make?
1: Great. So, Neeraj, this uh, brings me to the next question, right? which is, if you think of a bank's loan portfolio, uh, they have, let's say, home loans, which will be, uh, the interest rate will be, let's say, eight and a half nine 9%. Uh, They will have, you know, personal loans, which can go up to 13, 14, 15%. They'll have some, uh, you know, unsecured loans to SMEs, which will be maybe 18, 19%. So why do banks do kind of all these type of loans? Are they all profitable, equally profitable? Uh, And why would you have this kind of a spread versus uh, have interest rates, which are um, kind of somewhere in between, let's say? uh,
0: So... What goes into pricing of a loan? right? One of the most important component that goes into pricing of a loan is whether a loan is secured or unsecured. Mm-hmm. right? And if the loan is, whether it's secured or unsecured, what is the probability of recovery of money and what is the amount of recovery possible if you were to liquidate the security? Right. If you if you were to kind of seize the collateral and liquidate the collateral, what do you what are you going to get, right?
1: And so security means that
0: the borrower has something
1: which he assigns ownership to the bank in case of
0: pledges to the bank.
1: He pledges to the bank, and in case the borrower is uh, not able to pay, then the bank
0: has recourse to the
1: recourse the collateral. to that uh, that whatever that that asset collateral, is. right? So that could be a house, uh, that could be you know uh, some machinery that could be uh, in some cases uh, inventory uh, anything
0: yeah. so i mean it's a very age old notion that if yeah. you got to borrow you got to pledge something pledge something yeah. right so what do you pledge yeah
1: and unsecured mm-hmm. by the way just to complete this thought unsecured means that there is no asset that is being pledged yeah.
0: unsecured the bank is
1: just giving money and in the in the with faith that you will return it back if you don't return it back i have no recourse to i it. have
0: no recourse to any asset that yeah. you have or any valuable that you that you have Therefore, by definition, unsecured loans are more risky, right? right? Uh, And if an unsecured loan were to go bad, there is nothing that the bank can recover because there is no collateral to liquidate, there is nothing to recover this money out of, right? Uh, So, at at a macro level, you will realize that the pricing of the loans very sharply varies between secured and unsecured. Unsecured tends to be a far more expensive form of borrowing uh, rates on uh, rates of interest on unsecured loans tend to be far higher as compared to rates of interest on Securities. secured borrowings right credit card borrowings personal loans loans for consumption purpose for example loans to buy washing machines refrigerators televisions right uh, typically the asset that you have cannot be repossessed and cannot be sold or the value or the cost of repossessing the asset and selling it is f- far higher than the value of the asset in some senses right all these kind of borrowings tend to come at a higher cost or a higher interest rate because a bank is taking quite a significant amount of risk, credit risk, in making those loans. On the other hand, house is considered to be a very high quality collateral, right? Uh, uh, if you were to kind of take a house, given the shortage of housing in the country in general, the demand for housing, you, it's it's... Not that difficult to sell a house and housing prices, house prices tend to appreciate over a period of time. So, for example, if I gave you 100 rupees of loan against the collateral of a house that you bought today, uh, and typically these loans tend to be 10 to 15 years loans, 5 years down the line, you know, the value of this house will be far higher, it's an appreciating asset. Therefore, uh, if I were to make the loan today and the loan were to go back five years down the line, two things would have happened. One, the value of loan would have come down because you've paid back a little bit, right? Second, the value of collateral has gone up because you know inflation has played its role. Therefore, the ability to sell the house and the ability to recover the full value of the loan that has been given out by way of liquidation of the house is very 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 high. The chances of bank making losses in this scenario are far far lower than chances of banks making losses on the lending uh, in the unsecured loans which is what is reflected in the pricing. which is why uh, lo- loans for houses mortgages tend to come at a far far better pricing as compared to let's say loans for two-wheelers. Because two-wheeler is a depreciating asset. Yep. A similar argument could be made about gold. Although gold is not as much of an appreciating asset as a house is, but gold retains its value, right? It's very, it's relatively easy to liquidate gold. It's very easy to uh, you know, collect the value of the gold uh, if you were to repossess it. Although gold comes with a slightly higher operational cost and some of the nuances, which is why gold loans tend to be slightly more, expensive as compared to housing loans. But that's the thesis. How much risk is the bank taking in making that loan? What is the probability of recovering the loan if I were to sell the collateral? And if there is no collateral, it's a full loss. That's why you see this wide range of interest rates. Great.
1: Thank you for joining us for that episode. Today we spoke about the asset side of banks We spoke about loans that they make, floating rate loans, fixed rate loans, etc. We also spoke about investments and the characteristics of of these investments. Uh, It was a great episode. We really enjoyed bringing it to you and we hope you liked it as well. Thank you for
2: joining us.